There are more than 57 million miles of Alaskan wilderness. Between 1973 and 1983, a serial killer used this vast expanse to hunt his 17 victims like wild animals, knowing they would never escape. In 1980, the skeletal remains of a young woman were found in Aklutna, Alaska. Her murderer claimed she was his first victim and may have been a topless dancer or a sex worker. He suspected she may have come from Kodiak, but investigators aren't sure if this is true. Aklutna Annie is his last remaining unidentified victim. This is her story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by musician and documentarian Kelly Moneymaker. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. Normally, we start out these podcasts and I ask you a question, but today's a little bit different because we are talking about a woman who is known as Aklutna Annie because she's an unidentified woman. And also, usually, Vanessa doesn't really know much about these cases, but in this instance, she does because this woman was part of a documentary that we did called She, and we talk briefly about this story. Not in depth. Today's in depth. Vanessa, what do you remember about this story about Aklutna Annie? Well, I mean, her story is a little bit terrifying. So I remember that she was she was killed in the Alaskan wilderness at the hands of like this kind of hunter serial killer. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so we're going to get into not just her story, but kind of the broader context about what happened to her and many other women. So it, it does include a lot of gruesome tidbits that we are, you know, we are going to downplay because I think that emphasizing the women is more important. But this does involve a serial killer who did indeed take women into the Alaskan wilderness and hunt them. He was a hunter of various game animals and also women. Women. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think we really need to get into too many of those details because just the idea of being hunted is already gruesome enough. Right. So we're going to start off in a little bit of a different direction. We're going to get to Aklutna Annie in a second, but we're going to start off with something else. What are we starting out with? It's just after 8 p.m. on September 27th, 1983, when 18-year-old Cindy Paulson is being interviewed by Alaska State Trooper Glenn Flothy in Anchorage, Alaska. What Flothy is hoping is that Cindy can provide a statement that will help them in an investigation they're conducting. What Cindy perhaps doesn't know is that her statement is going to help lead to the arrest of a man who has committed some of the most shocking crimes in Alaska's history. When Cindy comes in to talk to investigators, she is there to talk about something that happened to her on the night of June 13th of that year. Despite being only 18, Cindy has been involved in sex work for a while. She'd been a runaway starting at the age of 12 and was being trafficked by a pimp in her early teens. Cindy's story isn't necessarily unusual. She was part of what was a pretty robust sex trade scene in Anchorage that we're going to talk about a little bit more as the story progresses. The day before, so June 12th, she had given her phone number to a man to arrange to meet up, but she slept through his phone call. The next day, so on the 13th, Cindy was on 4th Street, which is part of Anchorage's red light district. This man sees her there and pulls up next to her. She gets into his car, 
and they agree that she'll perform oral sex on him in his car for $200. He pulls by the side of a house, and while she's in the process of giving him oral sex, he starts like fiddling with her neck and necklaces, and eventually he pulls a gun on her and handcuffs one of her hands. Okay, so things escalated quickly with these with this situation. Things did, yes. And when Cindy's talking to Trooper Glenn Flothy, she says, I fought, but not a lot because I knew he would do something. Well, and somebody has a gun. I mean, it's, it's hard to know how you would react in that situation until you're there. Exactly. And so what happens to Cindy next is definitely out of a nightmare. The man drives her to Muldoon, Alaska to his house. There, he rapes her. And then he leaves her tied, chained, and handcuffed in a room while he goes to sleep. Tied, chained, and handcuffed? Yes. She's not getting out. No. Five hours later, he wakes up and tells her that since he likes her so much, he's going to fly her to his cabin, where presumably he plans on sexually assaulting her again. But he says that he will bring her home. And though he's being solicitous, Cindy says, I knew I wasn't going to come back. So because he likes her, he's going to do these things? That he'll return her. Oh, he'll return her because he likes her so much. Yes. Wow. Well, and also that he likes her so much, he'll spend more time with her. What a, what a gentleman. The man forces her into his vehicle and he makes her lay down in the back seat so that she's not visible. They're going to the Merrill Airfield where he has his plane. And when they get there, the man gets out first and he starts digging around his trunk looking for something. In order to do this, he actually puts the gun on top of the car and then he grabs something and he brings it to his plane. So has he underestimated Cindy at this point? He has definitely, because this is when Cindy makes a run for it. Good. The man gives chase, but thankfully there's a passing motorist. Robert Yount sees Cindy and gives her a ride up the street to the mush inn. He sees the man chasing after them and recognizes that he has a gun. Once she gets to the mush inn, she calls a friend. I've also seen him described as her pimp to pick her up and take her to a motel where she's staying. Okay, and so where's the guy that was following them at this point? He actually goes on and notifies police that there is some sort of situation happening. And they end up finding Cindy at the motel she's staying at. Okay, so she's completely safe at this point. She is. Okay. She is, though, still wearing the handcuffs. Okay, somebody needs to help her. Right. What she does, though, is she is able to take police and show them where his airplane is and also his house. She's also able to describe some of the items in his home, including things like the bearskin rug where he sexually assaulted her. So at this point, the police really know that she's been at this place already. Yeah, I mean, you know, for our understanding, she's a very credible witness to this, right? After all this, though, she's finally able to go to the hospital and get the care she needs. Alaska troopers decide to follow up on this information that Cindy's given to them. They're able to put together that the plane and the house are indeed owned by the same person. And I'm going to pause here to remind listeners that we're not using this name on purpose so that the names that you remember are the women that we're talking about. So what do we want to call him? We're just going to call him him or the man. The man. The man. And not only that, like there's a worker at the airfield who gets the license plate number of a suspicious car, and that's also registered to the same man. 
Okay, so he's everything is lining up with everything that Cindy said. Yeah, all signs are pointing to like a relatively easy case here. You've got Cindy, the driver, the man at the airport. You've even got Cindy's acquaintance, the potential pimp, to back up this story. The house, the plane, the car, that's all lining up. They bring the man in for questioning, and the first thing he does is make a joke about not being able to rape someone who is a sex worker. That's a terrible joke. Right. And Alaska Troopers, like, they quickly let him know that, no, that's still a crime. You can. But what he ends up saying next stalls the investigation. What's he say next? The man says that on June 12th, he couldn't have been with Cindy because he was with two friends. One earlier in the evening and one later. And when investigators follow up with these friends, those friends confirm the story. But what about the time when she was just chained up? Could he have been with a friend during that time? So both of these friends say essentially they account for all of his hours. So his friends must be lying. <clears throat> are they? <laughs> the troopers are starting to realize that their case that maybe seemed quite easy was going to be like pretty much blown apart. Okay. Not only do these two men corroborate his story, but one is a manager of one of the city's biggest insurance companies, and one is a private contractor and boat builder. So both of these men are well-known and respected in the community. Okay. And so essentially, it's Cindy's word against some well-known men. It's not a great way to start. No. I mean, Cindy's word plus handcuffs plus other witnesses. Right. But... Yeah. It seems obvious, but at the same time, if these men are going to... And they're... Okay. I'll let you carry on. Now, when they first try to bring Cindy back to talk to them again, it's pretty clear they have stopped believing her story. They ask her to take a polygraph, but at this point, Cindy's just done with them. After all, if they didn't believe her already, what good is a polygraph going to do? Right. Especially, I mean, if those men won't cave on what they're saying, then... What can happen when somebody has two witnesses? Right. I should probably add some additional context to what is going on here. At the time of Cindy's kidnapping and assault, people in Anchorage were beginning to realize that they had a problem, and that problem was that sex workers, both those actually selling sex and those performing as dancers, were disappearing. Okay, it makes sense given what Cindy's already said about this guy is like, I like you, so I'm going to let you live. Right. Something about that says, like, at some point he did not let somebody live. Exactly. And so investigators are quite a long ways from any of that, though. But they do know that sex workers are disappearing. Alaska has always been, like, kind of a place of individualism. There's that, like, perception of, like, toughness and, like, the mythos that surrounds it. And that's true now, like it was in the 1970s and 80s. People were moving in and out of the state with some fluidity. But... Those particular eras, the 1970s and 1980s, people, particularly men, are arriving in Alaska to work on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. Okay, so there's a bunch of just men coming into the area. Right, and that's because in 1968, oil is found in Prudhoe Bay, and this really kicks off the decision to lay 800 miles of pipeline through the northern parts of Alaska down through the south. And to create those pipelines, tens of Thousands of jobs are created, and most of the centralized housing and business development happens in places that already had development, so places like Fairbanks and Anchorage. And with those jobs specifically, working on the pipeline is also an increase in all of the support businesses. And more people means more consumers. And some of those support businesses are in the sex industry. That 
meant to boom in everything from direct sex for money exchanges to strip clubs to the sale of nude images. So that explains why Anchorage has a red light district. Yes, <laughs> right. And specifically, 4th Avenue in Anchorage. So the avenue that Cindy was on when she got picked up. That became one of the primary hotspots for the commodification of sex. In the 1950s, so like years earlier, Bob Hope had called 4th Avenue the longest bar in the world. Is it all just bars along there too? It really was. And like by the 1970s, those bars became clubs. Now, a good number of the women in the sex industry were not from Alaska. Like the men working on the pipelines, many found their way to Alaska looking for work. And there was a lot of movement in this population. New women would come in, women would leave, and a lot of them were using aliases to protect themselves. So there's a lot of anonymity happening here. So it makes it easy for some of them to go, go missing without authorities noticing. Right. Or even other people. So despite the fluidity of this population in Anchorage, there were already conversations happening about missing women in the area, as well as bodies being found in the wilderness. On July 17th, 1980, so we're talking almost exactly three years before Cindy found herself chained up in her abductor's house, the decomposing body of a woman was found buried near Lake Eklutna, which is north of Anchorage, by power line workers. Now you said bodies, so is this one of many right, that so was discovered at this time? So she's kind of one of the first. And investigators were able to tell like very little about this woman. There was a lot of decomposition, meaning that they think that she might have been killed months earlier or even in 1979. She was young, possibly between the ages of 16 and 25. And they determined that she might be mostly white, but also could have some Native American heritage. And she was shorter somewhere between 4'11 and 5'3, and she had light-colored hair that was kind of ranging between, like, light brown to strawberry blonde. Okay, is that, and that's Eklutna Annie. So this is going to be the woman known as Eklutna Annie. When she was found, she was found fully clothed, and nothing about her clothing is really unusual or particularly distinctive. Like, we talked about in the Buckskin Girl case, like, she had a very distinctive coat. That's not true here. She's wearing a brown leather coat over a knitted short sleeve top of kind of indeterminate color because she's been out in the elements for a while. Jeans and knee-high boots that were reddish brown. She was also found wearing jewelry, which included a metal bracelet with turquoise stones that could have been handmade, a copper necklace with shell beads, a heart pendant, a metal Timex watch, and a carved shell ring and gold-plated metal hoop earrings. She'd been killed by a single stab wound to her back. So we don't know where she came from at all. We don't know anything about her. We don't know anything about her, just there. Because investigators, they're able to find some matches in her pocket. They think she could have been a smoker, but they're really unable to find any identification on her. And no one comes forward to claim her. And no one says they recognize her. And so she, like so many unidentified people, she became known for the place her body was found. So that's how she gets the name Eklutna Annie. Eventually, she's buried in Anchorage Memorial Park under a marker that reads, Jane Doe died 1980. 
While her clothes were like not very distinct, it sounds like her jewelry might have been, but nobody had any recollection of seeing somebody with that kind of jewelry on. And so when they say that it's like not particularly distinctive, I think what that ends up meaning is like not particularly traceable through like maker's marks or that sort of thing. Okay, so it's not through like asking around and say, like showing pictures of that jewelry and saying, hey, have you seen somebody with like these particular necklaces on? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like, you know, they did and they would have, but I think you're right. Like not necessarily that the jewelry has to be like traceable, but like like this specific collection. Right, right. Because that's like the things we notice on other people sometimes, I think. Right. Things that set them apart a little bit. So earlier you said we were finding bodies. So was Akluna Annie towards the beginning of this finding of bodies? She was towards the beginning, um, but she wasn't the first. Just a few weeks before, on July 8th, 1980, a woman's body was found in a gravelly area near the Snow River on the Kenai Peninsula. Her body had been partially eaten by a bear. And investigators actually had to destroy a black bear that was guarding the site where her body was. And do we have an idea on that woman? They don't know who she is at first, but they eventually identify her as 24-year-old Joanne Messina, who had been working in Seward, Alaska. And then over two years later, on September 12, 1982, two off-duty Anchorage police officers were hunting moose on the Kunik River when they found some clothing which then eventually leads to discovery of a body buried in a shallow grave. So it's the third body. Yes. Now, this would take a few weeks, but she was identified as Sherry Morrow. Sherry was 24 and had been dancing under the name Georgia at a bar called the Wild Cherry when she disappeared sometime in November of 1981. So we know that Eklutna Annie was stabbed. Do we know how Sherry died? Yeah, so unlike Eklutna Annie, Sherry was shot instead of stabbed. But like Aklutna, Annie, Sherry is fully dressed, which there is a notable anomaly with this. There are no bullet holes in Sherry's clothing, which indicates that she was nude when shot and the clothing was put on later. Oh, that's really creepy. That's really creepy. So he dressed her after. That's what they believe, yes. So by the time a teenage Cindy Paulson speaks to investigators in the summer of 1983, women have already been turning up dead. Okay, so we're not completely believing her because of the alibis yet. There's already been three bodies and she's describing kind of that this guy would have killed her had he not liked her. Yeah, I mean, at this point, when she speaks with them, there are three bodies. Mm. And that doesn't include the women who are working in the sex industry who reported missing. And that includes 31-year-old Paula Golding, who was reported missing in April of 1983, or 24-year-old Angela Federn, who was reported missing in May of 1983, Dylan Frey, who was 22 when she went missing in March 1983, 23-year-old Sue Luna, who had been missing since 1982, 20-year-old Tamara Peterson, who last spoke to her parents on the phone in August of 1982, and Teresa Watson, who was 22 when she was last seen March 25th, 1983. Okay, so that's a lot. I think we should believe whatever Cindy says at this point. Yeah, so despite Cindy's statements, the eyewitnesses, the matching identifications of the same owner of the house, the car, the plane, all of these missing women, still not enough. Nice. So what's it going to take to convince them? 
We're going to get to that in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. So we're still waiting for investigators to believe Cindy. But then on September 2nd, 1983, a few weeks before Cindy Paulson is brought in again to speak to investigators about what happened to her in June, another woman's body is found along the Kinnick River, close to where Sherry had been found. This time, it's Paula Golding, one of the women I just mentioned who was missing. Paula was from Hawaii and had been in Alaska for a while, first working as a secretary in Fairbanks, and then she went to Anchorage, where she was dancing at the Great Alaska Bush Company. Her roommate, who had danced with her, reported her missing in April, after Paula had met with a man and never returned home. Paula had been murdered by a single shot to the chest. So behind the scenes, these two cases get passed to the same officer, largely because they're considered dead-end cases, cases with little hope of immediate resolution. And that's the first is the unsolved homicide of Sherry Morrow, the woman who had been found shot to death. And the second is Cindy's case. So he's got these two now. He does. And that's when the what ifs begin. Cindy's assailant was thrown around as a possibility in Sherry Morrow's case. And so he began investigating if that was even a possibility. He began trying to find flight information for this man's plane with little luck. The man had been flying unlicensed and... Yeah, and purposefully obscuring the identifying information on his plane so it wouldn't be logged properly. Okay, that was the next question I was going to say. It was like, well, don't they need to enter that information somewhere? Yeah, he had a lot of tricks. Like the numbers on his plane were really small, and then he would just make sure that he was high enough in the air so that air traffic control couldn't like see his numbers when he went by. So that all seems kind of, kind of shady. Yeah, they also find out that Cindy's assailant does have a criminal history. So they didn't look into that earlier when Cindy first went in? I'm not sure, but like this is where they start to put together like, oh, maybe we should look at this guy. So in 1971, he chased a real estate receptionist, a female real estate receptionist, while holding a gun. 
And she managed to get away, and not long after, he was picked up by the Anchorage Police Department. Okay. So that's his criminal record. He was chasing a woman with a gun. Sounds kind of like... Sounds kind of like what happened to Cindy? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds kind of like foreshadowing here on what he would later do. Yeah. Well, just wait. Okay. The next month, he kidnapped a woman and drove her to the wilderness where he raped her. He then drove her back to Anchorage, but along the way, he told her that he had killed before, and she believed him on this. So all of this was happening in the 70s. This is 1971. Wow. Okay. So despite the second woman's kidnapping, that case never really moves forward, largely because she had been involved in sex work. So it's really the case of the real estate receptionist that sticks. And he pleaded no contest in that case and was sentenced in 1972. Okay, so we believe the real estate receptionist, but we don't believe the sex worker? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. He ends up spending much of that time in a halfway house, but he was ultimately paroled in 1973, so 20 months after that original conviction. I'm still, I'm still having a hard time believing that when Cindy went in to tell them what happened that we did not attention to this information yeah investigate his criminal history of assaults against women it just seems like the logical step so in 1975 he is picked up again this time for the kidnapping and rape of a dancer okay this is getting like tiring right now her story is very eerily similar to Cindy's. The man pulled a gun on her before driving her into the wilderness where he raped and sexually assaulted her. He told her that he would kill her. Thankfully, though, she survived, and even though she memorized his license plate number, she was too afraid for her life to speak with investigators. She also was really needing to protect her identity because she worked out of state as a teacher and couldn't let her work as a dancer become public knowledge. So she was telling this information to a woman that worked at the Anchorage Rape and Assault Center who passed this information on to police. And when investigators went to speak to the man, he played it off as a disagreement over payment, and the issue was let go. So we just believe anything this guy says. It's fascinating to me how many years he just continues on. Right. And so in... 1976, he's picked up for stealing a chainsaw from a store and charged with larceny. Now, the judge in this case is much less lenient with him and tried to give him five years in prison. For the chainsaw, but we're going to ignore all those kidnappings. Yeah. Okay. This sentencing was overruled by the state Supreme Court for being an unnecessarily harsh sentence. Well, I mean, it's a chainsaw, so... Should be more more punishment than a woman, right? Right. So when investigators are doing all the digging on this suspect, things start to feel like they're taking shape. Like the what if becomes more of a maybe. It feels more like a definitely, but maybe that's a hindsight thing. But then when Paula Golding's body is found, though it takes to the end of September to positively identify her, what they're able to ascertain much more quickly is that the shell casing found near her grave was the same type of shell casing that was found in Sherry's grave. So I feel like the, there's a pattern here with just like everything lining up perfectly all the time. Right. And so all these pieces are really coming together. And at this point, yes, it seems highly likely that Paula and Sherry's killer 
is the same. And then you have Cindy's initial statement. That leads investigators to start pulling all the cases of missing women and mapping out the details. Better late than never, right? Right. So by the time that Cindy sits down with them again on September 27th, investigators are ready, finally, to listen to her and collect details that will help them affirm what they suspect. The man who abducted Cindy is actually a serial killer. Finally. It's one month after this interview with Cindy that investigators are able to obtain a search warrant. The man's house and car, along with the bakery he owns and runs, are searched. His wife, because he's a married father. He's married? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but. So he's just like your friendly married neighborhood baking guy? Mm-hmm. Okay. He's a married father of two. Oh. With two young children. She's brought in for questioning as well. So the house that Cindy was brought to, was that his house with his wife? Mm-hmm. Okay. Where was she at the time of all of this? So the wife and the two children, they were on a vacation in Europe. And it's likely that he arranged this kind of thing for them, this trip without him, so that he could do what he wanted while they were gone. Okay. Do we know if his wife ever, like, suspected anything? From the interviews with interrogators, it looks like not really. Really? Yeah. Really? She did suspect him of some theft of items because they found also some stolen items in the house. But kind of like the bigger picture stuff of attacks against women, it looks like she was largely unaware. Okay. Maybe it's just something you wouldn't want to believe about your husband. Also. Well, on the other hand, though, she... They were together during his other ar arrests and questionings. Okay. Did she not believe them? Well, one of the things that I have read about her is that she was deeply religious and part of her understanding of marriage is like, you stick it out no matter what. Yeah. I think there's boundaries in that. Like, there are limits. Like, what are the limits? Yeah. There are limits. Yeah. Yeah, then no matter what falls within a healthy range of no matter what. Like he snores or he clicks his spoon on his teeth. Not, he's a rapist and a killer. Right. Right. So while they're looking at his house and other places, they also start to track down one of the friends that had provided that initial alibi for him for Cindy's abduction. So they're pressing pretty hard on him. And during their interrogation with him, he's not saying much, which leaves really the personal property searches and this guy with the alibi that they're trying to work. They're looking among his things for obvious things like guns. If they can match his gun to the shell casings that they found at Sherry and Paula's grave sites, it would be like an enormous step forward for them. They've also been told by the FBI's profiling team that they should be on the lookout for certain things like mementos that he might have kept from the women. Oh, yeah. So Sherry, for instance, she always wore a necklace with a gold arrowhead, and that wasn't found on her body when they discovered it. The search of his home lasts hours, but finally in the far reaches of his attic, hidden among the insulation, they find a collection. They find guns, one that matched the type that would have been used on Sherry and Paula, and they find jewelry. In the jewelry collection, there's a necklace that matches up to the one that Sherry wore. So are we convinced now? We're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> and what 
they don't know yet is they also find one of the biggest clues in this case. It's an aviation map with 24 marks on it. 24 marks? Mm -hmm. So over the next week, because it takes a week, the FBI is able to determine that the gun stored in the man's attic matches the bullets found near Sherry and Paula. By this point, the man has clammed up and has asked for a lawyer. So investigators really move forward with their case for Cindy in order to get them some time while they're working on everything else. Are they going to check the 24 points? They are. They've also at this point been able to get the friend who'd provided the man's alibi to come and recant what he said. Though I believe at this point he states that he doesn't believe that the man would have done anything wrong. Did he say why he was lying for him? I think that the general perception from him is that, like, he trusts his friend and doesn't think his friend would have done something to anyone. He must have felt stupid after. One would hope. On November 14th, 1983, one of the first headlines about this case appears in newspaper. And the headline reads, Anchorage man indicted in rape case. And it details the arrest of this 44-year-old man in the kidnapping of a teenage Cindy. He is indicted on five counts of first-degree misconduct involving weapons and three counts of theft. Meanwhile, investigators are starting to look at that aviation map. There are actually two. One was found in the attic and the other was found behind his bed. Okay, so he has things hidden all over the place. He does. And now there's a mark on the map that matches up with the location that Joanna Messina her body was found. She's the one whose body was being guarded by the black bear. There's another mark on the map that matches up where Eklutna Annie was found, and one where Sherry was found, and one where Paula was found. Do they start finding victims in the other points? Well, that leaves 20 more marks on the map, and they're quickly putting together that those actually are burial sites. But despite this, they can't go investigate because they have to wait till spring to see if those sites are correct. Okay. So we're waiting for things to melt? Yeah, we're, we're waiting for it to be safe to travel. Okay. But they know at this point what they're going to find, right? Yeah, I think they're preparing themselves for that. But by February of the next year, the man is ready to confess. He tells investigators what happened to Cindy Paulson, and he lingers on this story for a while even though they're waiting to hear what he's going to say about the other women. He eventually moves on to saying that he would, yes, kidnap sex workers and he would take them to the wilderness, but that he would return them. And he wouldn't say anything about murder. Well, who would, I guess? I don't know. Right, but he's in a confessing mood, so investigators know that this is their opportunity. And finally he says what they've all been waiting for. He claims that if there were women he brought there that did what he wanted, they would be able to go home unharmed. And if he didn't, he said, they stayed. So there's a lot, a lot more victims than the 24 and Cindy. Well, investigators are unclear at this point, but they do know they've got 24 marks on the map. They also are getting the idea that he has been sexually assaulting women for a while that's well. what i mean there's probably yeah. like half are probably dead and half of them are probably released and afraid to speak out yeah and like so the first woman that he talks about when they kind of press him for like what does it mean they stayed he starts talking about a woman who danced at a place called the good times and 
This confuses investigators because the first woman that they know about was Sherry, who worked at the Wild Cherry. Okay. And so he backs them up and he says that he wants to go in order, starting with his first. Yeah, so I'm just connecting that now. So so he doesn't say he kills them. He says they stayed? They stayed. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of even more grim than saying that he killed them. Right. I mean, it it's sort of like this deflection, right, that he doesn't actually want to say those words, but he comes out and says they stayed. So he backs up the story. He starts saying, I want to talk about the first. And what he says next is the story of what happened to the woman that we now know as a Klutna Annie, whose body was found in 1980. The man says very clearly he doesn't know much about her or her personal details and says he thinks her family may have lived in Kodiak. And I just want to pause to say like that information from him may or may not be true because he really does not have very clear remembrances of anyone. He says that she may have been a topless dancer or perhaps had been selling sex, but he picked her up and he told her he lived in Muldoon, but when they drove past the road that they would have taken, she tried to get out of his truck because she realized something was wrong. So when she got out, is that when he killed her? Well, the story's a little bit more detailed. So like in a lot of other cases, he pulls a gun on her and he told her that she needed to do what he said. So she wasn't able to get out at that point. And that if she did what he said, she wouldn't get hurt. He then took her to the wilderness where he had a bear stand nearby. But on the way there, the truck got stuck. He then told her that he'd lost interest in whatever it was that he had planned for her and that he would bring her home after he got the truck free. So where is she in the meantime? So he gets out of the truck and tries multiple times to get it unstuck. She remains in the vehicle, and he very much would like to point out that she was not tied up at that point. I don't know what it matters. They're in the wilderness, and he is a scary man with a gun. Right. When he gets back in the truck to try again to get it loose, he tells her to get out for some reason. And when she does, that's when she starts running towards the power lines. Is that when he kills her? He caught up to her and grabbed her by the hair, and she grabbed a knife that she had in her purse trying to save herself. Instead, he's able to grab her hands and likely the knife and then also trips her. And so she falls down. And she knows then that he's going to kill her because she keeps on saying to him, don't kill me. He promises her that he won't, but then he does, stabbing her as she lay face down. So he told them all of this. I think he very often told women that, you know, if you do this thing, you won't get hurt. Right. But then he tells the investigators that too, almost exactly. like it, like they had what they had coming because they didn't cooperate with him. They didn't listen to him. Yeah. What follows is the man's confession to the murder of more women. His confessions are chilling. And it's what we talked about at the beginning of this. For many of the women, he follows the same pattern. He takes them into the wilderness via his plane. Some of them run. And then he hunts them through the Alaska shrub before killing them. So do we think that this would have kept going on if it wasn't for Cindy? I I hope that wherever Cindy is, that she understands how important her statements were. Ultimately, he ends up being convicted of four murders. Aklutna Annie, Sherry, Paula, and Joanne. 
Looking at the aviation maps he marked, the man admits to burying women at 17 of those locations. He says those women are all workers in the sex industry. Is that making it okay? To him, I think that's his justification, largely because some of the things he said to investigators, basically he felt that sex workers were beneath him. And obviously from a lot of his statements, he feels like their lives were not valuable because of that. I feel like that idea might have been reinforced at like that situation in the 70s where you're talking about him like the 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 weight of what the real estate woman says is more than what the sex worker says so it's just like he already had this belief and now basically the law is telling him the same thing yeah it's actually a sentiment that was echoed by one of the investigators that like we taught him it was okay right he denies there's anything at the remaining sites on his map Though some of them correspond to other crimes. So one is a woman. She was 18-year-old Celia Van Zanten. She went missing after she left home to go to the grocery store on December 12th, 1971. And her body was later found on Christmas Day. There are also women who are still missing now, which includes 17-year-old Megan Emmerich, who went missing from her boarding school, and 22-year-old Mary Phil, who had been last seen at a bakery. Now, how come he's admitting to some but not to others? Investigators believe that Celia, Megan, and Mary, none of them are involved in the sex industry. And so they believe that he avoided confessing to those because he didn't have that ability to deflect, right? The deflection, does he also think harsher punishment? Because they're not like throwaways? Yeah, so I mean, I think like, he built up like this defensiveness about it and particularly these three don't match the narrative that he's constructed so he's he's justifying it like he's he's making it ethical in his head yeah in his own weird code of ethics where right and so police suspect that there are bodies located that might correspond particularly to megan and mary on the map but have never been able to prove that they still haven't it's, you know, highly suspected. Lots of evidence suggests that that's true, but they've never found their bodies and are, aren't able to confirm it. Finally, in the spring of 1984, investigators are actually able to go to those locations that are marked on the map. There they find the bodies of 41-year-old Lita Futrell, 28-year-old Malai Larson, 23-year-old Sue Luna, 20-year-old Tamara Peterson, 24-year-old Angela Federn, and 22-year-old Teresa Watson. They also find another unidentified body. This is a woman who they end up dubbing Horseshoe Harriet after the location that she's found. And a pilot finds the body of another woman in 1985. She remains unidentified until 1989, when a state trooper recognizes her jewelry and is able to determine that she's Delyn Frey. In total, 13 bodies are found, some that he confessed to, like the murder of 24-year-old Angela Altieri, have never been located. Do we think they're still there and they just haven't? I mean, you said one of them, like the bear. So that yeah. kind of thing can happen, right, to others? Right. So with Angela specifically, it's likely that he threw her into the river. So the likelihood that she'll be found is pretty slim. For the longest time, though, Horseshoe Harriet and Eklutna Annie were the two remaining unidentified women still connected to this story. 
Their bodies were eventually exhumed, and using investigative genetic genealogy, Horseshoe Harriet was definitively identified as 19-year-old Robin Pelkey in 2021. Okay, so just recently. So is Ecluna Annie the only unidentified one left? She is the remaining one. And cold case investigator for the Alaska State Troopers, Randy McFerrin, he said in 2021, we really got our fingers crossed that we may find out who Eklutna Annie is. And he hoped at that time that she would be identified within a year. And that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened yet. But sometimes these take longer depending on who is in the those publicly accessible databases. And I want to end this with what Alaska State Trooper Glenn Flothy said. After the news broke that this man who killed these women died on October 21st, 2014, while he was still serving his 461-year sentence, Glenn Flothy said, On this day, we should only remember his victims and all their families. My heart goes out to them. As far as he is concerned, the world is better off without him. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, Things a Girl Should Know, read by Kelly Moneymaker. Kelly Moneymaker has been a professional musician since the age of 14. She is best known as a member of platinum-selling trio Exposé. She also co-wrote and co-produced a soundtrack album for NBC's Days of Our Lives and has music in over 25 other productions. In addition to music, Kelly is a documentary filmmaker known for her award-winning film VACA. Her soon-to-be-released project, Drum Song, The Rhythm of Life, is about indigenous climate adaptation in her homeland of Alaska. Things a Girl Should Know Unidentified woman discovered July 21, 1980 in Eklutna, Alaska, after Tarfia Faisula. Remember to keep your eyes open when you dance naked against a pole. The customers want to pretend you move your body for them. Remember to buy heels so tall and sharp they are daggers. You can use to run down a man's body, catching against rib bones on the way. When you buy new clothing, it doesn't matter how short or tight, as long as you take it off. When a man wants to photograph you, ask him. Ask him if he's ever killed before. He will say no, but listen for the ratchet of breath in his chest, the way his pupils dilate under the neon club lights. If he tells you to run, you will never be fast enough to escape the sight of his gun, the sharp tug of his knife. He will bring you to the wilderness, the place where the ice crusts thick to hunt you among the scrub. If you have sold your body to dance or to the touch of someone's skin on yours, then when he parts your slit flesh, someone will say this is your own fault. But listen, listen to the sounds of the river. This is the moment when you hold your breath. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? 
It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.